0: Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand, episode 37 Burning a Hole in My Wallet. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Karis. If you want to support Hans, go to patreoncom history Aotearoa. Last time, we began the story of Barnett Burns an Englishman born in the early 19th century who became a flax trader in Aotearoa. He came over and fell in love with the land and people so much that he wanted to return to live on a permanent basis. To help with this, he gained employment with a merchant named Montefor to set up a trade station in Mahia with a local iwi. We left Burns after he had been trading flax and other goods for 11 months, until a ship carrying a Mr. Sims arrived, who was an agent of Montefort. After a bit of scuffling and negotiation, Burns was given a choice. Head back to Sydney, or stay in Aotearoa on his own, with no guarantee of income. He chose the latter. Sometime after this incident, most of the tribe left their village to tend their potato and kumara fields, or sweet potato, that were some distance away. This left the village, called a pā due to its walled fortifications, rather defenceless, with minimal people inside it. During this time, Burns learned that a neighbouring iwi tribe, Ngāti Te were looking to attack the pa and take his trade goods, which Burns stated he would die in the effort to defend them, due to the effort that it took to get them off Mr. Sims. However, his father-in-law, the rangatira chief, advised against it, as there was no hope they could defend well enough, with most of their fighting people away and too far to return in time. Instead, he said they should take a Wakatowa, a war canoe, load it with his stuff and head for Poverty Bay, the next major bay in the north. There they would be protected by Awahi's allies. Burns agreed, loading the Waka canoe with his goods, Amotawa, their child, Awahi, himself of course, and some slaves to do the actual paddling. This left those who had not gone into the fields behind, mostly women and children. The women grieved as they left, cutting themselves with quote-unquote lava, which I can only guess means obsidian. They had some difficulty getting to their destination, with the waka canoe and all the goods having to be carried over land at one point for 21 kilometres or 13 miles. Despite this arduous journey, they made it safely to Poverty Bay and Awahi's allies, Te Tangi Mahaki iwi. They were very helpful to Burns, saying they would help him trade, supply him with food, and protect him. To this end, the local rangatira chief advised Burns to travel another 19 kilometres, or 12 miles inland, to where there were a series of strong Pa fortifications. He had only been in Poverty Bay for 24 hours, before he set out again towards these fortified villages, who also warmly received him. Burns says at this point he didn't really have much to do, perhaps as he needed to lay low for a bit. As such, he decided to have a bit of a holiday and take in the sights, saying the area was quote, the finest and most beautiful of all the island, end quote, and that he'd found all sorts of animals and plants in abundance. However, these were mostly European ones rather than the unique flora and fauna of Aotearoa. I can only assume this was because Burns wouldn't be able to identify our potocarps, weta, or any of our wide range of endemic birds as opposed to the European ones that he was likely familiar with. It was about three weeks after his escape from Mahia that Burns heard of another European in the area. He wanted to go meet him for trade and likely just to see someone who was of similar culture, but he was unable to. News came that a 600-strong army was heading towards them, looking to rumble. Burns doesn't elaborate on why they were looking for a fight, only that he was requested by his chief to join the battle. Whether this chief was Awahi, or whoever was in command of the Pa fortifications, Burns doesn't say, just that it was, quote-unquote, his chief. This was to be Burns' first battle, but not his last, and he didn't need much encouragement to join despite any apprehension, saying that it was better to just dive in rather than hesitate. Given that Burns had a number of muskets, shot, and powder for trade, he was able to help arm those setting out for battle, potentially giving them a significant advantage, as we mentioned earlier. The army was 700 strong when they left the Pa fortifications looking for their enemies. They travelled 32 kilometres, or 20 miles, to where they thought the opposition army was, a large amount of smoke lifting into the air, almost confirming where their camp was. The plan was to catch them by surprise, and ambush them. However, this was foiled when one of their kuri, dogs, accidentally walked into the enemy camp during the night. They grabbed it, tied a cord to it, and used it as a lead to have the dog take them back to the camp of Team Burns. Instead of attacking though, they used this chance to run, possibly deeming the fight not worth it, potentially due to superior numbers or firepower. Team Burns only discovered their escape the next morning, and quickly got to pursuing them. They were long gone by that point though, and they were only able to capture some food carried by four slaves. As was typical at the time, The slaves were executed and eaten. Burns also describes his allies performing a quote-unquote war dance that they performed before and after a battle to show their joy in victory. The war dance is something that you may be familiar with as you have likely seen the All Blacks do one before every rugby game. A haka. There are many different types of haka so the one Burns would have seen wouldn't be THE haka as you know it as that one would have been written around this time, if not a little later. With their enemies driven off, Team Burns returned home. Things were quiet for a time after that until Burns went on a flax buying trip with some of his new mates. Along the way, they were attacked by a war party belonging to the Nati Tirangi Iwi. Burns says his party, quote, fought to a man, end quote, but that they were overwhelmed and defeated with everyone being killed and eaten. Except Burns. The Nati Terangi party thought they could get a good ransom for him from his chief, given he was a trader and a source of valuable European goods. They took him into the bush to where the rest of the tribe was, Burns saying that, quote, they had no houses belonging to them, end quote. So they were a somewhat nomadic group, something that was likely unusual at this time. Slavery in Māori society wasn't unusual, as you might have figured out by now, but it was a lot different to chattel slavery, that of the African slave trade. Slaves, or tau were given a lot more freedom than their African counterparts. Some slaves even rose to great wealth if they showed aptitude in certain arts or skills. What Burns says, though, is that he got quote-unquote friendly with a high-ranking woman. A very high-ranking woman, as her father was the Ariki, the High Chief. Essentially, someone who has multiple rangatira chiefs who are loyal to him. A very powerful man indeed, whose tapu, spiritual sacredness, extended to his daughter, who could stop someone from being harmed by transferring that tapu via laying her kākahu, cloak, on them. According to the woman, the Ariki High Chief wanted to be his friend and give him land. Although Burns doesn't actually say, I assume this was to try and get Burns to stay and trade for them, so that they could get access to the goods he could provide. She also says that due to the favour her father wanted to give him, there were others who were jealous and would likely kill him, at the first opportunity. She tells Burns to stick close to her and her father to avoid execution. Certainly a good idea, given that almost unlimited protection was within their power to give, but also potentially a manipulation tactic to a captive. During his time as a slave, Burns was treated pretty poorly. He was taunted, spat on, and told, quote, They would eat my very heart the first opportunity they had, end quote. Within a few days, Burns had had enough, and naturally wanted to escape. Despite his poor treatment, though, he kept his mouth shut from complaining, as he thought this would result in those men being executed for doing something they really shouldn't. This wasn't meant to be altruistic, though. Their execution would eventually lead back to him complaining, and result in worse treatment for him. Something that had happened to other Europeans in similar situations. Instead, he just watched and waited for his chance to get away. It never came. So he changed tack and tried to gain their trust and be mates with them. Surprisingly, or at least it was surprising to me, it worked. This led to some of the rangatira chiefs wanting Burns to be tattooed as a show of loyalty, that he would, quote, bring them trade, fight for them, and in every way, make myself their friend, end quote. This was a huge step in trust, as tā moko, tattoo, was not undertaken lightly, due to how expensive it was, the time it took, and the physical stamina needed. Burns would have likely seen the procedure of moko take place at this point, One that was so painful, often only a few centimetres could be done before they had to stop. As you might expect, Burns told the Ariki High Chief that he wasn't that keen. Although, there were other reasons too. Burns actually just straight up told the High Chief that he didn't really like them, and didn't have any intention of joining them fully. I can only assume from then on that Burns had difficulty walking due to his giant brass balls. This apparently made the chief cry due to the high regard he held Burns in. Although, if this did happen, and I kinda doubt it did, it would have likely been due to the loss of potential trade. In any case, the Ariki High Chief was not able to force Burns to undergo the procedure, but he did warn that if he didn't, it would likely result in someone killing him despite being protected. The Ariki High Chief was absolutely right, as one day when Burns was out hunting birds, he was accosted by a small group of his captors. Burns says they intended to kill him, and that he, quote, cocked my piece and told them to fire if they were inclined to kill me, end quote. I don't know about you, but I can hear the brass clanging from here. His willingness to stand his ground must have impressed the group, as they told Burns they wouldn't kill him if he fought for them, which would also mean he would have to get tattooed. Seeing no way out, Burns agreed. The group thought that this was pretty great, and cheered, carrying Burns home on their backs. Burns' later remarks on this was that he did this more out of survival than any desire to actually be tattooed or join them, hoping to be found by his allies soon. We mentioned it briefly before, but the process of getting Moko tattoos was long, grueling, and in Burns' own words, quote, "horribly painful." End quote. So after a week of having bone chisels tapped into him, not once, but twice for every line, Burns was only a quarter done. We aren't sure which part of his body was tattooed but we do know that his upper body was somewhat tattooed already in a style typical for English sailors, so it was potentially his face that was done. We also know that he got his whole face done after these events, so I'll have a picture in the show notes to let you see what he looked like. Thankfully for Burns, there was a storm on the seventh day, and he managed to use it to escape. He knew that they hadn't travelled far from where his wife, child, And the rest of the Iwi tribe were living so that was at least some comfort. The journey was still gruelling though as he was in dense bush with no shoes and anyone who has been out in the New Zealand bush will know that this is not just less than ideal but potentially dangerous. He also had to avoid patrols of his former captors who were sent out to find him when they discovered he was missing. All this meant it took him three days to get back to his tribe but he did make it, and they were very glad to see him, with many muskets being fired in excitement. The women also cut themselves, just like they had when he had left Mahia, as they used it to express extreme joy as well as grief, which made Burns uncomfortable, as you might imagine. Naturally, his friends were pretty interested to know where he had been all this time. Although he doesn't say, it's probably fair to guess that he was gone between a few weeks to maybe even a couple of months. They also wanted to know what happened to the rest of the group he was with, who were now obviously not with him, and the fact that he had no flax, as he had left with a large amount of it. This was to make no mention of the fact that he was now partially tattooed, which would have aroused a lot of interest. Bones told them his story, and they immediately swore to get Utu. Recompensation. In this case, revenge. Sixty men were immediately picked out to be part of a towa, a war party. They were armed with muskets before setting out to find Burns's captors and bring back their heads. Literally. Burns himself said that he would have gone, but he felt unwell, so instead retired to his own house. Naitarangi, his captors, figured out pretty quickly that they weren't going to find him, and that when he did reach the rest of Team Burns, they would come after them so they quickly got out of there, only leaving behind four pigs, which the pursuing party found and brought back. Although they hadn't exacted a violent revenge on their enemies, Team Burns was still pretty chuffed with having driven their enemies off and gotten a feed in the process. After Burns recovered, he went back to his day job, trading harakeke flax. On one particular trip up the Tūranganui River in modern Gisborne, he could hear the sounds of a battle outside the village. He asked some of the locals about it, asking them what was going on and who was attacking them. He learned that it was Te Iwi, who had been stirring up trouble in the area for some time. Not wanting to get caught in the crossfire, Burns headed back downriver and back home. Not long after this, word went out from the tribe he had been visiting that they intended to storm the pa fortifications of Te and drive them from the region for good. They couldn't do this alone however, and were asking for assistance from Team Burns as well as other local iwi tribes. The rangatira chief agreed, and an army of 600 was gathered together in preparation, with Burns himself specifically being asked to not just join the army, but lead a contingent of 150 soldiers. A sign of not only their trust and respect, but his mana a word meaning things like prestige, gravitas, influence, or spiritual aura that you might find around someone important, like a leader of a nation. The army set out, linking up with the others along the way to the Pa Fortifications, which Burns says were very strong, although not big, probably only 400 metres or a quarter mile in diameter. By the time Team Burns and co. reached the Pa Fortifications, everyone had been rushed inside for protection just like a medieval castle overall it had taken them three weeks to reach the par fortifications and surround them only seeing some minor skirmishes during that time they were easily won and those captured or shot were eaten it was at this point that team burns and the rest of the army settled in for a siege over the course of the siege People would sometimes leave the Pa fortifications to try and forage for food, but more often than not, they were captured and usually eaten, as was the case with one of the Ariki High Chief's wives, who tried to escape the Pa fortifications by swimming across the river. Burns goes into quite grisly detail on how the Chiefs laid claim to various parts of her body to eat, discussing in front of her, while she was still alive. The woman was instructed to go to the river and wash the potatoes she was to be roasted with. At the same time, the rangatira or their subordinates, I guess, dug a pit for the hangi. Burns then says about when the woman returns, quote, I affirm positively that I saw this woman gather green leaves, lay them down on the hot stones, tie both her legs together herself, and then ask one of the party to tie her hands. When this was done, she threw herself down on the leaves. When she was over fire, she begged some of the party would knock her brains out. They would not. They kept her on the fire a few minutes, then laid potatoes over her and covered her up with earth. I, before her life was half gone, until she was cooked fit for eating, Burns also mentions that they enjoyed her meat so much, especially since she was an enemy, that it was sent to people 480 kilometers or 300 miles away. This would have likely been done by either sun drying or smoking the meat, as salt wasn't really used by Māori to preserve foodstuffs. Along with this, Burns describes how to cook a person more generally, saying that regardless of the rank of a person, their head would be cut off and preserved in preparation for sale to Europeans, or it would be buried in a more tapu fashion. The body was then cut into quarters, and he specifically notes that it wasn't really washed at any point, even before it was cut up into smaller portions for cooking in the hangi. Burns notes that no meat was wasted when it was eaten out of the flax woven baskets, and in fact, that these baskets were very clean and never reused. What you're probably wondering though, is whether Burns tried it himself. And although we don't know if he tried human meat specifically, he does mention that he was impressed by hangi-cooked food in general, saying it tasted pretty good, and noting that most often pork and potatoes were cooked this way. I can't help but wonder though, whether Burns did have some, but didn't know it, given that other Europeans who took the chance to try human meat described it as tasting like pork pretty consistently. It is possible that Burns was playing up the gory details for effect, something you could argue for a number of other details in the book. But his description seems to be roughly in line with other sources I've read on the subject. Anyway, although there was a siege going on, there was still some trade between the besiegers and the besieged. Things like flax for gunpowder and food for what Burns calls mats, but by the way he describes them, he actually means a kakahu cloak. Although this may seem counterintuitive... After all, they were giving the enemy items that they probably needed. It of course let Bronze's side also get items they needed, but also allowed them to get closer to the par fortifications and perhaps even inside them to scope out the weaknesses a little and determine how they would storm them. In the end, though, Team Bronze just decided to rush the par fortifications that they were sieging. They would cut the vines, holding the gates closed, or holding the walls together, to get inside and smash the enemy once there. As you'll be used to me saying by now, Burns doesn't go into any detail of the battle itself, apart from the fact that the plan worked, and the par Fortification's 400 occupants were captured, presumably minus those who were killed in any fighting, though Burns doesn't mention that either. The prisoners were sheared around as war booty, with about 60 of them being killed and eaten in celebration. After their victory, Team Burns headed home, the various iwi tribes splitting off to go back to their respective pa fortifications and kaina, villages. Things settled back down into their usual routine for the next three weeks. That is, until a ship called the Prince of Denmark arrived. She had arrived from Sydney to trade, and after some negotiation with Burns, he managed to get employed by the captain for £3 a month with no extra commission on large amounts of flax. A bit of a raw deal compared to his previous employer, but likely a much more steady income than what he had been doing since his last employer had given him the sack, which actually wouldn't have been that long ago. The timelines from various sources seem to be a bit varied, but in general it seems that the prince arrived in 1832, only a year after he had arrived as a trade master for Montefiore. The catch was that he had to relocate again, another 48 kilometres or 30 miles north along the coast to Tolaga Bay at the mouth of the Uawa River. Thankfully, though, his wife's brother lived there, so they wouldn't be surrounded by those who were totally unfamiliar. So once again, Burns packed up himself, his wife, their child, or potentially two children at this stage, and a few others to head off up north. As a side note, this is the first instance in his book that he mentions any children he may have had. Next time, we will see Burns continue to rise in prominence in his iwi until he is faced with the biggest decision of his life that will lead into the end of his story. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chin wag, you can reach me through email at historyaotearoa at gmail.com or twitter at historyaotearoa or facebook at historyaotearoa new zealand podcast aotearoa spelt a-o-t-e-a-r-o-a this podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch from HistoryAotearoa.com, or rate us on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. It means a lot and helps us grow, spreading the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, Harituwatu tu hoki mai. See you next time.